0: Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of the Lewis and Kyle Show, an interview podcast with fascinating conversations with entrepreneurs, investors, authors, and a whole variety of incredible subject matter experts. Today, of course, being no different. In this conversation, we speak with Matthew Leasing. He's the author of the popular book on Amazon, Out of the Ether, the amazing story of Ethereum and the $55 million heist That almost destroyed it all. In addition, Matt is the co-founder of Decential, a media company committed to telling the stories of founders, builders, and visionaries who are creating a new decentralized economy and internet experience. Matt's been a reporter since 2001, and for the past 17 years, worked for Bloomberg News. He's been covering crypto since 2015 as one of the very first mainstream journalists to understand what the breakthrough of blockchain technology could mean for finance, culture, and industry in general. This conversation dives into the big stories from his book out of the ether, which I just mentioned, what he learned from actually getting fairly close with Vitalik Buterin, the creator of Ethereum or co-creator, depending on uh, how nuanced we get there. We discuss uh, how he actually almost gave up when he was writing the book, but why and how kind of timing and luck and circumstances helped him persevere. We discuss reflections on all of 2021 and all the craziness from that specific year in the world of crypto. We discuss what his perspectives are. On regulations he'd like to see in the industry. And if you've heard Lewis and Kyle show before, you can guess we cover a whole lot more. That's all I'm gonna say before we get started. Quick word from our sponsor, and then I'll switch right over to the episode. Enjoy. This episode is brought to you by our friends at VASA, the virtual assistant staffing agency. We hired our first virtual assistants from VASA to assist with our operations running the show back in June. But Vasa is not just for podcast editors. If you need some extra hands to free up your time, let VASA help you with hiring for administrative, technical, and creative work. That's graphic design, cold callers, social media managers, sales reps, video editors, admin assistants, and more. Free up your time to focus on your highest impact work and learn more about VASA at Vastaffing.agency or by clicking the link in the show notes to schedule a free strategy session with their team. Alrighty, back to the show. Matt, welcome to the Lewis and Kyle show. I think this can be a really fun conversation today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's going to hopefully be a pleasure.
0: Yeah, we've done a lot of interviews with people who kind of assume the title of expertise for crypto because, you know, they're on Twitter. They think they know a lot about it. But to actually dedicate yourself to publish a substantial book with a publisher and the whole actual process, I think, really qualifies you as someone with especially this this one story within it. But the field as a whole, I think we're going to learn a lot from kind of the depth of your expertise. Uh, I want to ask you kind of a fun question at the start. Uh, in either the story of kind of the creation of Ethereum more broadly or specifically in the DAO, uh, in your process of finding your research for this story and traveling to different parts of the world and chasing people down, who do you say is just the most outlier, interesting, just extremely intelligent, just bizarrely otherworldly level of just, wow, that is a genius. Uh, you can say Vitalik if you'd like, but if there's another one that's more under the radar, that's fine too. But in that process, who comes to mind is like, wow, that person was just outrageous.
1: Well, um, I I hope it not to bore you, but I am going to say Vitalik, but for a different reason. And because when I started the book, I, I had known Vitalik a little bit. I'd interviewed him a few times when I was a Bloomberg reporter. But so I knew he was like obviously a genius and, and brilliant coder. And he was very um, well versed in how Bitcoin worked and co-founded Bitcoin magazine. And, you know, like his reputation was very much in the blockchain space. But what I really liked finding out um about him from interviewing his mom his dad his stepmom i went to his high school i interviewed his high school english teacher his math teacher you know like the principal at the school they all still um speak glowingly of italic um so he went to this um very high uh intelligence sort of uh, high school in toronto called abelard and he just like crushed it in every subject he ever took part in like whether there was chemistry or math or physics. He was reading Greek um, in, you know, he was doing Greek um, mythology in Greek. He was reading it in Greek and, you know, he was getting A's and just like blowing people out of the water left and right. And this is, you know, among a, a group of his peers that are like, you know, of similar intelligence, it's not like just a normal high school in Toronto. And so I really got an appreciation for what a kind of Renaissance man he is. And I don't think he, and many people know that about him. And I don't think he comes across that way necessarily because usually he's talking about some technical aspect of Ethereum or blockchain or consensus protocols or what have you. So you don't really ever get a sense to like figure out that like, you know, this guy like writes really well, like he wrote for Bitcoin magazine in a way that really, I think, brought a whole generation of people on board by doing a really good job of explaining complicated things in a way that people can understand. Um, he's also, you know, like I was, I'm saying, he's like he's got a, a real world kind of view of of just a lot of different subjects and he, he speaks several different languages. And so what I came away with and it was sort of accidental um, with the book, but when all was said and done, I, I feel like I kind of was able to create a really nice sort of portrait of Vitalik as a person, as a human being and somebody who had fears and doubts and, you know, uh, personal conflicts, but also triumphs and, you know, like breakthroughs. And so I felt like at the end of the day, um, I I came away with this really nice profile of him, which I did not set out to do. You know, I definitely wanted to tell the book through the characters and obviously he's a main character, but I think that, um, just, just kind of like figuring out and and just realizing how, um, he was sort of the perfect, perfect person to bring Ethereum to life because, what Ethereum is, is a system where the substrate is there and you can bring whatever idea you have to it and you can create on top of this thing that he helped create. And I feel like that's very um, indicative of his own sort of mindset, you know, and just like the way that his own like uh, school went and schooling and his academic career was like, he was a jack of all trades. And so he kind of brought that into the blockchain space where, you know, you have Bitcoin to begin with, and that's great for one thing. But then Ethereum is kind of like the Swiss army knife of blockchain. You can do almost anything with it. So I, I just came away with like that. And so I hope that's not boring, but I don't think that many people kind of get to see him in, in these other, uh, in this other light.
2: Yeah. I um, would recommend the podcast that he did with Blog of Jake, another person that we've interviewed on this podcast as a place to really find out how wide ranging Vitalik is, because I think that podcast had nothing to do with crypto purposefully to kind of showcase the um, the range that he has. But I think, you know, like you're alluding to, this kid is a genius, right? He has is doing Greek mythology and Greek and and is smart in the math professors but there comes this time in the early the early days of Ethereum where he has to make a like layer 0 if you will decision around the leadership of the company when they're in Zug Switzerland and it's this very dramatic very um like big moment in his life how do you think that affected him uh moving forward where he had to be this kind of like new leader, whereas before that he was sort of a loner writing this, um, you know, writing the white paper by himself in Spain and et cetera, et cetera. Like how do you how do you kind of think about that?
1: Yeah, I think um that was a huge learning point for him, I think, and a turning point as well. because uh as he told me, you know, he he hadn't he hadn't really he'd never had a job. You know, this was kind of the first thing he did. I mean, he was a writer for for Bitcoin magazine, but he was doing that while he was still in high school and then early into his college career before he left college. And so when he came up with the Ethereum idea and sent out his white paper, um, he collected a bunch of people around him, um, some of them whom had money to help fund the project, some of whom, you know, were um, developers who could help him write code in different clients, and some of people who were just sort of like hangers on or, or somebody who they wanted to get in on the ground floor of this thing that they, they thought would be a billion dollar um, enterprise, which it turned out to be. And so, you know, Vitalik was not a CEO. He, he wasn't, he was a kid, he was 19. And so I think he kind of found himself in this situation where all of a sudden there were people around him who had agendas. And he, he said to me, you know it was the first time that I realized that somebody could be nice to you for uh, another reason than just wanting to be nice, you know, like they were sucking up to him or they were trying to triangulate with him or trying to figure out an angle. And after a short amount of time, it, you know, it was only six months before the co-founders came together in Miami to where he had to fire people in Zoog and in, in like June or July of, of that year. And and so it I think it's kind of um, showed him a bit of the real world you know that he had never really been experienced or had no experience with there was also of course like i alluded to like a lot of money here at stake and and people knew they were coming from bitcoin and they had seen how much money people had made in bitcoin um by this time you know around uh we're we're in 2014 2015 time period and you know if you understood kind of the blockchain and peer-to-peer idea and then you saw what Ethereum was proposing, you, you would probably figure out that this thing could be huge. You know, it was the next big thing. And so everyone wanted to get in on the ground floor. And so there was a huge money element to it. And there was a lot of politics and a lot of backstabbing and a lot of, um, craziness that I chronicle in my book. Um, and I think for Vitalik, uh, who really just wants to kind of, um, be i don't think he ever set out to be a leader but he wants to be someone who's thinking about you know deeply about these things and about like crypto economics and how to use a token to change you know how a company or um, a group of people work and and how do you incentivize them with that where like a big thing with ethereum is you know with the ethereum foundation how do you keep funding the ethereum foundation without just like issuing more ether to like you know kind of like you know, fund the thing. Um, it, it's a, it's an interesting question because it's not really a nonprofit where they're going out for grants. Um, they, they can do some of that, but, you know, that's not really like a crypto native kind of way of being self-sustainable. So he's always, I think, really wanted to be a deep thinker and a writer and a communicator and someone who's, who's writing code, but sort of at a high level. And And if you notice what he usually does is he's got the the great ideas and the architecture and then he usually leaves it to other people to kind of be like, okay, now here, I've drawn this house in a sketch, but I need an architect to come and like actually put in, you know, what this joist is going to be like. And here's the load bearing stuff and like put in the nuts and bolts of it. So especially earlier in his life, like what you asked about, I think that was a a kind of a rude awakening and it was not comfortable for him. And I think, uh, it was, it was something that, you know, uh, he still talks to this day about having regrets about, but it, it did become something that he couldn't
0: avoid. Where you personally kind of get into the story. So what, what, where were you kind of in your career leading up to the moment where like, actually this is covering this and telling the story about what's going on right here, right now is gonna take precedence over the majority of everything else that I do.
1: So I started covering blockchain for, um, bloomberg news in 2015 and at that point it was like wall street was starting to kind of dip its toe into you know whether this kind of network idea of computers and and like putting people on a network that was sort of like um maybe promising almost near instantaneous settlement of trades and things that like you know the bitcoin blockchain had proven could be done so wall street kind of saw that and said hey uh You know, Wall Street works in a way where it's all siloed and it takes days to settle trades and everything like there's one set of books here at JP Morgan and another set of books over at Bank of America. And when transactions go between them, each side has to reconcile that trade and change their books and sometimes their errors and it takes days and it costs a lot of money because both of the banks have to set aside money to ensure that if those trades don't, you know, go through they've got some capital set aside to, to make anybody whole as needed. So it ties up a lot of capital. It's, it's, and it's slow. So a blockchain kind of idea among a bunch of banks and financial institutions that was more instantaneous was a huge, you know, a, had a huge appeal. And so, um, that, that's sort of where I got into it and it made a lot of sense um, for me at my job at Bloomberg where I was deep into wall street. And then, um, uh, so that was 2015. Uh, Ethereum had just come around. I, I was not really quite aware of it. I started getting, um, uh, started hearing more and more about it in early 2016. And then the Dow came around, which was this first really big project where in a nutshell, it was a kind of digital asset version of a venture capital fund where everybody decided like, let's pool all our money into this big smart contract. And then startups can come and pitch us ideas on like what they want to do and to create a, an, an app on Ethereum. And if we like the project, we'll fund them a little bit with what we have in the pool of money. So that's where I sort of kind of, that's what got my attention. I remember sitting now with Joe Lubin, uh, the he's a co-founder of Ethereum and the founder of Consensus, And their, their offices were in Bushwick, Brooklyn, where I lived for a couple of years. And, and I just sat down with him and he kind of really made the light bulb go off over my head about Ethereum as this global computer. It's like way, way more powerful than Bitcoin. With Bitcoin is a global payment network, which is great and it's hugely powerful. Ethereum is like a, a global computing network, which is, you know, even more powerful. So that's where I was sort of coming into it from. Then the DAO got hacked and there was, you know, that crazy story about what happened and it turned out that uh, one of the editors at the Bloomberg Magazine, uh, Bloomberg Markets Magazine asked, you know, they do a story or excuse me, an issue every year on heists. And he said to me, you know, I'd been covering crypto for a bit. And he said, hey, do you know of any good heist stories? And I said, yeah, I got a good one. <laughs> so that's where I kind of, that's, then I got the assignment and sort of set off on figuring out, okay, well, how can I tell this story about the Dow in a way that, that makes it compelling and and you know you want like a strong narrative and so that's when i started getting to know the folks behind that uh and and that magazine story eventually led to my book and i used the mag i I used the dow hack as as a way to i threaded it through the book as a kind of narrative tension and then i also um surrounded those chapters with chapters about vitalik and about you know how he created Ethereum and brought people around him and all the conflicts and successes they had. And so that that was sort of like the format of the book kind of like gelled in my mind. And that's what I was able to kind of do going forward to, to get the book written.
0: Yeah, I think when people listen to podcasts, they don't appreciate you know, the podcast here you are today kind of sitting with us as just the author of this book. But what was the extent of time? Uh, I guess let's skip to the part where you'd already published the successful magazine piece to take that and turn that into, you know, cause I know you traveled far and wide to actually conduct these interviews in person. And if that's, uh, one, it was kind of just maybe standard practice in the pre-COVID era. And then also, uh, you know, you're more likely to get people to share maybe sensitive details or just become more personal and trusting with that. But what was that entire duration of that process?
1: Yeah. So, um, let's see, I, I, I think I got the assignment for this magazine story in like late, 2016, December ish or something, because I think there were something around there early 2017, took several months to write that, you know, report and write that story where I got to know some of the developers and the hackers that were, um, there, there was a group of white hat hackers that were involved that kind of like rescued a lot of the ether that was at stake of being stolen. So that came out in the summer of 2017. Uh, once it came out, and the people that I had spoken to for the story saw it and read it, and you know, they they liked it and like realized, okay, we can trust this guy. I think you know, like they they felt like I did a good job with their story, and that was a huge uh, help to me when the book came around. So, what I did after that was like I realized, okay, well, this is the stepping stone to the book. You have to write a book proposal. You kind of have to lay out like an outline, and here are some sample chapters, and you know, you really have to like spell it out for a publisher and then you send that out um, to agents. And so I started doing that. Um, It didn't really get anywhere. Uh, It wasn't really hitting because it was still pretty early in the crypto world, you know, and and blockchain and it hit. um, So this was, yeah, so 20, but by by the end of 2017, that's when, you know, Bitcoin hit 20,000 and everyone was going crazy and ether was at like 1400 and these were all time highs. Everyone was talking about it, you know, in bars. I remember being in L.A. and and hearing about, you know, just crypto and random conversations when I was in bars around like Thanksgiving of 2017. That's when it kind of really burst through into the consciousness of of, of the of the world. And then so it was just a lot of like sending letters out and trying to like get an agent and like not hearing anything back or getting a, a no or like, oh, I think this is a good idea, but I just don't think it's right for us. And then in early 2018, one agent that I had, I had sent something to like, I'd given up at that point. I thought like, well, crap, <laughs> you know, I thought that was a good idea, but it doesn't seem like anyone's biting. So um, and then out of the blue, uh, an agent I had sent, you know, pitch to got back in touch with me and asked me if it, if it was still available. And I said, yeah. And that was like early 2018. And so we kind of went over it and what you, an agent does is they kind of help you with your pitch and, and your book proposal so that because they know way better than I do, like what a publisher actually wants to see. So we kind of worked on it and then he took it out and and you know, pitched it to publishers and uh, we got a few bites. But and then we got one um, from Wiley and I ended up being the book contract. So I think it was like mm, maybe early spring of twenty eighteen when I actually got the book contract and that like what that means is you get an advance. Uh, so I got a small amount of money, um, to use, to report out the book. And so then, you know, you're off to the races. And so I started reporting it and, um, I did some traveling all through 2018. Um, and so, yeah, so by about November, 2018, I'd done about, I don't know, I want to say eight to 10 months of reporting. Um, had lots of interviews with a whole bunch of people. I'd gone, uh, all over the place. Um, and then, so yeah, I'd gone to Europe. I'd gone to Canada. I'd gone to New York. uh, I went to Burning Man for a week. Um, and then, so I just had a ton of great information and a ton of great interviews, uh, in my notebook. And so, um, starting in about November of that year, I took book leave at Bloomberg, uh, for about three months. They gave me three months and that sort of is when I wrote the book Um, and, and then it came out, like I was trying to find out who hacked the Dow. And that was like one of the things that I was really trying to figure out at the time. And I, I got, you know, I hit a dead end on that and then I got a good lead on it. And then, so right at the end of my book leave, I was able to fly to Tokyo and meet with somebody who I thought was involved with the Dow hack. And this was, um, I think like January or February of 2019, uh, or no, I'm sorry, 2020. Yeah. I hope I'm not getting my dates wrong here. Um, but it was, yeah, right before everything shut down in the pandemic, um, and, and did that final interview with him and was able to get it into the book. Um, and then it goes to the publisher and, you know, they take a lot of time to get it formatted and proofed and all that stuff. And it was released in September of 2020.
2: So yeah, so that's good timing with the you had a whole bear market that you went through between uh, the event with the Dow and, and starting that all the way to publishing. Yeah, that's pretty funny. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It,
1: um, Yeah, it was. It was. It was
2: great. It was, you know,
1: it sounds like a lot but you know, I mean, it was the finest thing I've ever done in my career. It was like a really, really good project. And it was something that I really wanted to challenge myself with. And it definitely was that because I'd never done anything like that in in such a big, you know, I'd written magazine articles and stuff, but the book is a whole new, a whole new world. Um, but the, the people who I spoke to and interviewed, they, they were just so generous with their time and, you know, they just gave me everything that I needed. So I knew by the time it all, um, was over and I had like, you know, stacks of, of files and like 30 notebooks full of interviews. I'm like, there's a great story here. All I have to do is figure it out and find it and all of this stuff. And and I kind of knew where it was at that point because I had spoken to so many people. And so it just became a task of like, okay, now it's time to write the thing.
2: I love that. You know, I think it's a very important story too. And that makes it an even, uh, that makes it heavy on you because I think in the future, as Ethereum becomes more and more important to the world and to society, uh, people will look to that book as a source of like truth, uh, which is a super cool spot to be in. But going back to the DAO um, and kind of in line with the threat of questioning about Vitalik, there was another moment there where he had to decide whether or not to fork the Ethereum blockchain. And ultimately he decided to, and that created Ethereum Classic and Ethereum. Uh, you know, as somebody who has studied that event so deeply, how do you think about, um, Vitalik's decision to do that? And kind of, what do you think are the factors that he was weighing? Um, and ultimately, do you think he made the right decision?
1: Yeah. So first of all, it wasn't a decision Vitalik made. Like he couldn't do that. Like he's just one person. But what, after he considered the options, he came down, um, with his decision that forking would be the best option and then what he had to do at that point was convince the rest of the ethereum community that that was the best option because for that to happen you you have to basically um everyone who's running an ethereum client needs to um agree to update you know so there's going to be an update to the code that that is the ethereum blockchain and an update like in this case would have It would take the DAO contract that was there that had the bug in it, and it would basically replace that contract with a contract where it would say, okay, if you bought, if you sent Ether to the DAO and got DAO tokens in return, now you can send those DAO tokens to this contract and get your Ether back. So it completely changed the DAO contract and it basically changed the history of the blockchain. But it's important to note. It only changed this one small sp- specific thing. Everything else around that, all the transactions that had happened before and after that, didn't get changed at all. It was just this one contract. So they basically kind of decided, okay, what we want, what we're proposing is we're gonna we're gonna swap out the bad bat, the bad DAO, with this good DAO where everyone can get their money back and it'll be like the, that none of the money was ever stolen. So Vitalik and other people in the community had to go out and convince everyone that this was the best path forward. It was, you know, contentious and it's still contentious to this day because blockchains are supposed to be immutable, right? That's one of the things, if you're operating in a trustless environment where you don't know your counterparty and don't trust them, you can't have it be that after the fact that those transactions can be reversed, you know? So there has to be that the trust comes in with like that idea that my transaction will be final once it's final because I don't know who I'm interacting with. And I, I just, I, you know, I don't have control over that, but I need to know that once I go forward with this, it's not going to get reversed at some point in the future. So that was, you know, that was the contentious part of it. The other options they had were not good. And it was really, um, you know, the other option here was that the guy, uh, the hackers or whoever they are, were going to get away with the money, you know, like the clock was ticking on the Dow. Um, they had something like 31 days to do something. Otherwise, the attacker would actually get away with the money. And then the DAO would be sitting there still with this bug in it and other people could exploit it. And so it was a question of whether these good guy hackers that were trying to protect the DAO, you know, wanted to keep fighting and they were tired and they didn't want to keep fighting and they were doing this for free on their in their spare time. So I think for those reasons, everyone kind of came around to this idea that forking and, and changing the history um, of the DAO contract was the best thing for them to do. So in the end, you know, 99.9% of, of everyone using Ethereum agreed to that and they updated. But the reason we had a fork um, or a reason that the old chain continued to, con- like to be live, was that there was one Ethereum pool operator called F2 pool in China that didn't upgrade and they kept mining on the old chain. And that was a conscious decision on their part. Um, it cost them a lot of money at, at the beginning, but it gets into, you know, like it gets into other things. If you guys want to get into that about where Ethereum classic came from. And and that's like one of the weirder, more science fiction kind of, um, aspects of the story where, you know, it's already pretty weird and then you get, get into
2: this level and it's just like, it's like, whoa, <laughs> what the hell? I
0: don't think we can leave 100% of a cliffhanger there if there's the
2: Yeah, that's too intriguing.
1: <laughs> okay. So, what Yeah, so what they did um like what everyone is hoping would happen is when the fork went into effect that 100% of everyone would upgrade to the new version of Ethereum and they would just the, the chain would sort of fork and now It would be as though the Dow never existed and it was just this contract where you could go get your money back if you had given money to the Dow in the first place. Um, But this this F2 pool in China kept mining on the old chain, which at first is very expensive and and very um, energy intensive because there's there's no reward for it. And there's no really reason to do it, but they kept doing it and until... um, they had created, you know, they kept mining enough blocks to keep keep that old chain going. And this is the chain where the DAO hack still was like part of the history. And so what happens here is now you've got two chains kind of in parallel. You've got the new Ethereum chain, which is forked, and then you've got the old Ethereum chain. And when that happens, um, you have to have a cryptocurrency in, uh, associated with the, with these chains. So on the forked chain, it's still the old Ether on a new chain, there was now a kind of like uh, a doppelganger crypto and people started calling it ether classic. And so if you had um, a wallet with any ether in it before the hack or, or before the, excuse me, before the fork, and now this new chain or the old chain still keeps going. So you had 100 ether in your wallet. Now you've got 100 ether classic in your wallet. So it, it's, a, it's a real weird kind of quirk of blockchains. And so um once that happened, a couple of days after the, the miners kept creating blocks on that old chain, um a couple of exchanges listed Ether Classic and and you could now go and buy and sell Ether Classic. And so all of a sudden it had a value. And so it got really weird with like okay now um the DAO attacker, you know who had, uh, 12 million or something ETH, uh, now has 12 million ether classic. And, and now, you know, so at, at its highest point, uh, the ETH classic was around 20 bucks or something, I think. And so while the Dow hacker had had his $55 million like taken back by the community, he had now like something like, I don't know, a couple million dollars in ether classic. And so, um, that's the genesis of ETH Classic and it's still out there today. Um, it's not really a very viable blockchain in my opinion. It's been 51% attacked, um, several times and there's really nobody building on it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's weird and I'm, I'm sure I've gone too fast, but, um, in the book, I, you know, that's one thing that's nice about a book. You can kind of slow down and sort of like spell this stuff out a little more, um, concretely and a little more slowly, but, uh, yeah, that that's sort of the the high level view of it.
0: And there's some fun parallels there to kind of like the I read or listened to the block size war, which has a lot of similar dynamics. It's not quite the same story, and I'm forgetting the name of the author there. Maybe Jonathan Beers or something. I just know that Guy Swan narrated it. Uh, we had Guy on the show like two years ago as well. But these stories are for anyone who's just getting the, a little bit hooked. I would definitely recommend diving into the books and like getting the full. There's so much nuance and so much context and colorful characters i would go take that next step to uh yeah. hear the whole sauce
1: absolutely and a great book to start with if anybody's just starting is um digital gold by nathaniel popper it's just like he's got the whole history of bitcoin there and it's just it's really well done and um it was a bit of a, a sort of a template that i wanted to use for for out of the ether but wasn't my book is not nearly as as exhaustive as his
0: yeah, it's a very good one. There's a lot of good Alfinian like history in there as well. Yeah. Why did you become a journalist in the first place? <laughs> um,
1: I've always loved to write. Uh, it's just always come easily to me, and it's something I really enjoy. And um, so, you know, when uh, looking around for jobs, you know, if I could like journalism was a job where I could write and get paid and not have to worry about, you know trying to publish a novel or, or short stories or whatever, which is, you know, really difficult um, in this day and age. So it, it just kind of, it was sort of like my love of writing with a little bit of practical kind of um, application to where, you know, yeah, I can, I can get, I'll have a paycheck every two weeks. So that's where it started. And then what I quickly realized was that it's really fun to be a journalist because what you're basically doing, you know, first of all, you're trying to tell people something they don't know, which is fun and just it's sort of like, you know, there's a kind of like a hunting aspect to it in a little bit, you know, in a a certain way. Um, And then, you you know, you're also calling up people and, and sometimes powerful people and very interesting, smart people and just asking them to talk about themselves. And everyone loves to talk about themselves. So if you have a reason to call someone and say, tell me about what you're doing. Like, tell me about your job or tell me about what's going on. Um, you know, that, that 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 goes a long way with a lot of people, especially, you know, if you can be lucky enough to get somewhere like Bloomberg, where you've got that sort of reputation behind you and, you know, they know that this is going to go out into, you know, a major media site. So th- those things kind of combine to to make it, you know, a really fun career for me and, and just and always um, but always it comes back to the love of writing
0: good love of love of the process itself. I want to ask a couple other questions about, uh, some more recent components of the story, uh, in terms of like specifically 2021, do you have like an inclination or a crazy story from that period? Cause I had asked Kyle this question kind of before we'd started his thoughts on like me asking this question, like, you know, did you think based on everything crazy you saw and studied from 2016 to 2020, that things would get as crazy and outrageous as they did in 2021? Like, were you surprised and what Kyle had said to me was he's like no no one expects bull markets to get as crazy as they get that's why it's a bull market but what was your kind of reaction to all of the insanity I mean because I think as crazy as the heist is of uh the the Dow pack the some of the numbers just if 2021 like cr- it seemed like 50 million dollar mistakes and craziness was happening like on a daily basis in, in some parts of 2021 so like what's your now that we're kind of in this late 2022, things are clear, not calmed down, uh, I guess at all, especially the week we're recording this along the, the SBF chronicles, but your reaction to 2021 as a whole, given all the kind of pre-framework you had to process it, going into it.
1: So are you asking about like the hacks and stuff and or, or more like, you know, or also about like DeFi summer and the NFT stuff that all came out?
0: I'd say more so just, yeah. The DeFi summer, the NFT stuff, just because 2021 was an insane year uh, in crypto.
1: Yeah, so I I liken that back to the previous bull market when it was the um, initial coin offerings, right? They that got everybody really crazy, and that's what drove um, Ether up to fourteen hundred. So that was obviously um, where and and it, it. there's a lot of scams there, of course, and a lot of people lost a lot of money and there's a lot of fraud. But what what was really interesting about that was for the first time you had a peer-to-peer system uh, enabling capital formation uh, for a startup to you could go now to your peers or to investors directly and say, this is my idea. I want to build this decentralized app to, you know. Um, I want to build this, a decentralized exchange, so like Uniswap, where you know you can just trade pairs of coins, and there's no intermediary, there's no New York Stock Exchange in the middle. Or, you know, I want to build this NFT platform, and I know it was early for that, but I'm just, you know, these are examples of the things that people were um, wanting to build, and what they were able to do was they would go directly to the potential users of these applications and say, "Okay, here's my idea." Now we're selling a coin and, you know, you buying the coin will allow us to get the money to fund the development of this idea. So again, the caveat, huge amount of scams, huge amount of grifters and people just ripping people off. But the thing underlying that that's so foundational is that for the first time you were uh, enabling capital formation that didn't involve a bank or a venture capital fund or a loan or anything like that. It was like a peer to peer system. So that's what's so powerful about these decentralized systems and crypto in general, in my opinion, is you're taking traditional financial applications and like one of the main functions of a bank is to help companies raise capital and that maybe that's who the initial, um, uh, public offering right system in the stock market. So now you've obviously obviously got the initial coin offering in the crypto world. There's, there's not the, at the end of the day, they're, they're both raising money. Obviously the ICO process is a wild west. There's no regulation. You don't have to go through the sec, but so that was the powerful thing there that you could like raise money for your project kind of directly. And and it was insane that as you guys probably remember, people were raising 50, a hundred, $200 $200 million in minutes, you know, like the coins would sell out. And it was just like incredibly, um, a lot of money, a lot of like money moving really fast. So that was the, the, you know, the, the big breakthrough there. Fast forward a couple of years and now DeFi summer, you've got, um, people who have been working and building things on like now. Okay. Well, we're gonna, you can lend, um, or you can use your crypto as collateral to get a loan, you know, or you can, um, you can use uh, your crypto to earn interest. And so um, now it's like collateralized loans uh, in the crypto world. Again, basically peer to peer or you're working with, um, you know, a centralized sort of uh, actor in that space. But you're there's no bank involved there. You know, there's no financial institution. So this is now another huge part of, of traditional finance is loans, and now it's been remade and kind of there's an alternative system, so you can get loans in the crypto world. So then, that's another kind of big thing that that, that has that has now been developed. And then you go a little bit further forward in NFTs, and now you for the first time you you now can have scarcity for a digital good which had never existed before. So previous to that, a digital file could be replicated a million times and sent uploaded you know to anyone anywhere and and that's why they were fungible right they were just like it's it's like whatever it's napster right you upload your file anyone around the world can download that file now when you introduce a blockchain to a digital file you can make it scarce and you can make it um you can trace its history of of who owns it and and where it's been and you can prove that no this is mine and there's only 10 of these in existence so that scarcity lends itself to collecting and to um, people wanting to, you know, maybe think that's an investment um, for the first time. And that's where the art world kind of came into it and, and realized that NFTs could change the economics of the art world and you no longer need a gallery, you know, to sort of vet art. And now you could do it on the blockchain. Musicians are now figuring this out with the music NFTs and different ways of selling, you know, parts of their... Recording process to maybe fund the way that they, you know, the, the they fund their record. And so now a music company is not necessarily needed to loan that artist money and give them these onerous contracts and where they never make any money. And streaming services have like crippled musicians um, in terms of making money from the actual music they make. Now they have to make their money by touring. So that's the way I see the craziness of 2021 and 22, uh, where you're, we, we, we clicked like, or we kind of like checked off these other big boxes in traditional, um, industries or financial applications like loans and, you know, um, collateralized, you know, applications for things. And then like making digital items scarce was was a huge breakthrough and people like to laugh that it's, oh, it's just a JPEG. But it's, it's so much more than that. And, and so I think that we're just at the very beginning of what that sort of technology is going to allow for um, in, in art and music and a lot of other industries.
2: I'm so much with you on the um, applications of these technologies being something that um, are world changing. I think that the speculative fervor that surrounds these applications during the bull market can really damage the image of crypto and blockchain and 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 hinder these things from actually coming to fruition and happening and and helping the world and, and allowing people to get loans without um you know people that previously could not get a loan can now get a loan people who are getting screwed by their um 360 contract or are and and unheard of artists are making a lot of money but um I think that those things are set back by the speculative fervor, which I think a lot of people would attribute to um, the lack of clarity and the lack of regulation around these markets. And I think that you probably have a really interesting perspective on it coming from uh, Wall Street, which is very, I mean, it's been regulated for hundreds of years or not hundreds, but like a hundred years. So what do you think are like the the really important cornerstone regulations that we need to get uh and get right in the industry in order to let these things blossom and and affect the world without being um you know negatively impacted by the um the scams and speculative fervor yeah the speculation is obviously rampant
1: crypto i don't think it's very different though than other markets where, um, you know, whether it's the stock market, the bond, you know, parts of the bond market, um, every financial market has this aspect to it. Like you, you have to have speculators in a market. um, Otherwise it doesn't work because typically you've got somebody who's producing something and they need to, you know, sell that thing or, 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 you know, they want to sell stock in to, to raise money for the thing that they're making. And then You've got speculators, on the other hand, you know, on the other side of that trade who are wanting to buy that, hoping that it goes up in value. So if it was only producers, you know, you don't have a market. So that's that's one thing that you need to keep in mind. No, There's no market in the world that works without speculators. Um, that being said, yeah, the bubbles happen all the time. You know, we've gone through it in lots of other ways with um, the, the dot-com bubble, you know, the housing bubble uh, in 20, 2008 leading up to that you know, was, was driven by financial products on the back end that were, you know, basically incentivizing banks to give mortgages to people that they knew couldn't repay them, but they just would sell those mortgages off and they do another mortgage tomorrow. And, you know, that was the the, the incentive there was, was incredibly bad and it came crashing down and almost crashed the entire global economy. So, you know, we see this in, in every market that's ever existed. Um, I think, yeah, to your point, I I think the speculation is a, a bit of a problem in crypto, but we're talking this week when FTX just went bankrupt and FTX was centralized exchange that everyone trusted and thought was, you know, like the model for what was going, you know, to be this sort of crypto future within a week, you know, 46 billion dollars or something you know is is vanished and it turned out that it was a house of cards and that um they were using customer money to you know bet and to you know to invest into venture capital funds and they were completely over levered and so that's a centralized actor in this space and they were there's no transparency into that and You know, that's it. That's a bigger black eye, in my opinion. And we've seen that. um, This is not the first time this year that that something like that has happened. We've seen three RS capital go down and bring other people down with it. We saw Terra Luna um, go down. You know, that was another centralized sort of um, black box, uh, you know, crypto stable coin. And so I I think um, it's it's, you know, it's it's hard like Crypto is, it's amazing uh, how much punishment it can take, and it just keeps going. Like, it, it, you know, nothing has brought it down completely. Like, we have these setbacks, and they're, they're crazy. A lot of money is, is, you know, evaporated at certain times, but it's, you know, we also need to remember that a lot of the value that, like, FTX had was in this coin that created FTT. And it's like, well, what is that? That's like, that's a crypto that they made and, and people gave it value until they realized it was worthless and then it crashed. Right. So it's, it, we, there's another dynamic here that's, that's like, not like the other markets where the dollar doesn't go to zero, you know, like the stock market doesn't go to zero. There are bad losses, but in this space, it can be so volatile because a lot of times you have these new cryptocurrencies or whatever protocols, you know, have been created that people think are valuable until something comes to light. And now people realize they're not valuable and it can literally go to zero overnight. So I think that's kind of a bigger concern that I have right now is that the centralized sort of, you know, they're, they're supposed to be quote unquote, the adults in the room, right. Are not, are not behaving like that. And, and it's, I think that is more damaging because an exchange like FTX that, you know, is sponsoring what formula one racing it's on, you know, baseball umpires, you know, you can, you can't watch a major league baseball game without seeing FTX this last year and that, now it's gone. So, you know, I think that that doesn't send a good signal to people.
0: Yeah. I'm just, I have chuckled a couple times. And I don't know if chuckling is like the the most mature reaction, but you just listen off just tragedy. I mean, tragedy after tragedy, just like the like Kyle Davies and Zuzu, just the collapse of three hours. I mean, these are monumental, collapses that have all happened. the Terra Luna like oh yeah. yeah that one I mean these are just That's humongous numbers it's just a crazy and exciting time to uh be some paying attention and just have an intellectual curiosity about like the future of so many industries at once what uh and these are kind of going to be our last couple of questions in, in rapid fire I guess but what in the industry on the horizon are you most kind of obsessed with curious about uh that we haven't covered whether it's just some completely other corner of the system or sticking tr- true to just Letting ETH reach its full potential or something.
1: Yeah, well, you, you asked me about it, but I wish I could answer this better. But I, I wonder at the regulation, you know, now what's going to happen with in the wake of FTX, um, in the wake of, you know, Sam Bankman-Fried had pretty deep connections in Washington, D.C. He was lobbying for certain things. Um, he was strangely lobbying to um, regulate DeFi more than it's regulated. Uh, which, you know, DeFi has been fine throughout all of this. It's the CeFi stuff that's gone to shit. So um, that's going to be really interesting. And and I, you know, lots been written in the last few days about how this whole implosion has thrown a wrench into like how regulators and, you know, politicians are going to try to like figure this out because the thing is, a lot of those folks don't know much about this. They're still learning about it. If they know anything about it at all, you know, and there's 435 members of Congress, for example, and, you know, you can probably count on one hand the number that actually understand blockchain and and web three um, that, you know, now you got to think about Europe and Asia and and then the regulatory bodies, you know, where, you know, like, okay, how does the fed come into this? How does the CFTC, where's the sec's role, you know, where's the European commission coming in, you know? Um, so that to me is the biggest headwind right now, because I think, um, it's, it cannot be ignored. I'm not saying that they were ignoring it before, but I think, um, I think the sec was trying to take a path of least resistance where they would go after small, you know, projects, whatever they said, you violated securities laws. We're going to sue you. And that's like going to send a message to everyone else that like, you can't do this. So we're not going to actually write any laws, but we're going to enforce through regulation. And I, I don't think that's really viable anymore. I think Congress has to get involved here in the United States. I think they have to write some laws that take into account that in a lot of these cases, you might be interacting with a smart contract. That's your counterparty. That's a piece of code. You know, this is not a broker dealer that's registered and has, you know, um, licenses and insurance and has a fiduciary duty. It's a different world. And I think they finally have to hopefully get this through their heads that they need to, like, write laws that um, take that into account and make, like, modernize this and bring it into the 21st century. We can't be relying on laws that were established around, you know, whether you could sell shares in orange <laughs> for in Florida, uh, to apply that to digital assets. So there's a lot of work to be done and getting that stuff through Congress takes years and, you know, it's not always successful and it might be the second or third try when something finally happens. But in the years that are going to, you know, in those ensuing years, blockchain's not going to stop. Like this doesn't stop. Nobody stops here. We just keep going forward. And that's kind of one of the great things about it. But, you know, I, I hope that, something drastic isn't done where it's like, you know, people in the government say, okay, no, we got to shut this down some way because we can't let this keep happening. So I hope there's some sort of, um, agreement where, you know, the innovations can keep happening, but that like new rules and regulations can be drafted and agreed upon so that people know, like like, a lot of the people I've talked to and a lot of people in the space want to play by the rules. You know, they want to be headquartered in the U S they like, like, uh, they like it here. But for them to do that, they need to know like what's okay and what's not okay. And that's not the case right now. So that, that's a huge thing that I think needs
2: to be resolved as soon as possible. The regulatory, the regulatory clarity. clarity, boom. Hey, right. uh, I have one more question for you. Sure. Um, so you shared with us that your dad worked on the propulsion system for the Voyager and the Voyager two, um, that's incredible and super interesting. But there's this fact that I know that it's like, if you set the Voyager 2, which is, I think, currently the fastest moving man-made object, um, it's going like 30,000. The point is that if you set that object on a direct line for the nearest star, it would take 33,000 years for it to get there. Wow. What? Do you, how, how do we... What do you think we do to get to, to a interstellar humanity? Oh, man. And if you don't have the answers, that's okay.
1: Um, yeah, we need to find Ephraim Zimbalos, right? Like, uh, some other the guy from Star Trek that uh, broke warp. Um, I, Man, good question. I, I don't, you know, I don't see it happening. With the technology we have today, I, I hope what I've always hoped is that we um, get serious about space and not treat it like some afterthought or some like money sink. You know, I think I think establishing a base on the moon, um, making the International Space Station more robust and more international, and then using that you know base on the moon to get to Mars. You know. Is, is kind of a no brainer. I mean, if, I don't know if you watch the show for, for all mankind, but that's like, you know, like the, the gist is that the Russians beat us to the moon in the sixties and it, it just starts this, like, um, this real space race and the cold war kind of plays out in space. And so we get the internet in the eighties and we get cell phones in the eighties and everything's accelerated. And you watch that show and you're kind of like, damn, you know what? We, we could have gone that route. Um, but we didn't, so, but I, I don't think it's too late, and I and I hope that what what we do is you know kind of make that a priority, you know, not just for the U.S. but for everyone on 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 the Earth, and and try to really figure out how to you know because that's going to help I think solve a lot of problems here we have on Earth, and we don't know that yet, and that's what the, that's what the amazing thing about science is, and just basic science research will often you know. Lead to these breakthroughs that have applications and things that are completely far afield from what the people were actually investigating in the first place. I think space is a great example of that. So, I unfortunately, um, Kyle, I don't think we're going to be like going into light speed anytime soon. But um, if we could make it to Mars, you know, and like figure out how to grow food there and, and figure out if, if we can, you know, get water out of um, the, the,
2: the environment there, I think that would be amazing. We've yes. got to put a, a center center of hash in between us and um, and Mars in order to keep the Bitcoin or Ethereum blockchain uh, the same. So yeah, that's the that's the in between step. Yeah, but yeah, crypto um, should definitely be the. We really uh, appreciate it. Yeah, you know, sorry, I was going to say crypto should definitely be the, no, the first
1: national, uh, you know, national monetary system of Mars. So need to make that happen.
0: Awesome. Well, that is a fun place to wrap this up. I know you're active online in a couple of places. Your book is also available in a lot of places. As floor is yours for the most relevant things related to that comment.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. It's it's called Out of the Ether. You can find it um, online. Uh, It's in all formats like ebook or audio, audible, whatever you like. Um, If you're into special editions, like it's an NFT, there are only a thousand of these printed order that at out of the ether.net. Um I co-founded uh, a crypto media company called Desential last year. Uh we have been writing about the folks who who are making all of this stuff a reality. We've got a bunch of podcasts. Um that's at Decentral.io, Uh d e c e n t i a l.io. You can find us on Twitter at desentialmedia. Uh, I'm I'm on Twitter at Matt Lysing and um that's, that's that's about it. If you can't find me there, then I don't know what's happened.
0: <laughs> awesome. Well, this has been a blast. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah, thank you, Kyle. Thank you, Louis. This has been a pleasure. I really appreciate the time and an interesting conversation.
0: That closes out this conversation with Matt. Three takeaways from me, and that will close out this episode. The first one being, all markets require speculators. Otherwise, there would not be a market. Something I had to sit with when this conversation ended and really think about for a minute to, to fully understand but if it's just people producing, not people speculating on what will become more valuable over time, then there's really not like an interesting market to be had. So I like that. I feel like if I say that randomly in a conversation in the future, people will be like, oh, interesting. Uh, not that that's like the most important reason to, to listen to something or to find it interesting. But I, I just, again, I'm clearly still processing what that means. But that really stuck out to me. And I wrote it down on this, on this piece of paper here. Anyway, second takeaway for me, I like the authenticity of, you know, Matt just I asked him why he's a journalist. He had such a good, simple, true answer. Uh, I just love writing or he just loves writing and continues in 20 years strong, continues to love to write. And, you know, he found something where he can make money and, and do his thing, doing something that he really enjoys. So hats off to him for that. And uh, the takeaway there being pretty obvious, if you just love the process of what is involved in what you have to do every single day for your professional outcome, then you're probably in the right spot. And that's actually my third takeaway about being in the right place in the right time. I think when I started this podcast, you know, I had a very, very kind of hyper conscious or kind of trying to be really proactive about what is the best thing I can possibly doing to set myself up for the best position for jobs, business opportunities, making money opportunities. I said opportunities twice. That's how hyper over I was thinking about it. And the philosophy I've really come to now is just like do interesting things, do challenging things and kind of be out in the world and put yourself out there for things to happen. Uh, That's not enough agency to be like a perfect belief system. But if you are doing things, you're making money, you're interacting with other ambitious people, you're just going to kind of stumble around and and cool things are going to happen to you. And I think that's kind of somewhat the moral of the story here uh, with Matt's career is, you know, he was a journalist because he loved that and it was a good way to make money and he followed his passions. And then crypto became really interesting. So he started writing about that. And then that led to these conversations and that led to kind of taking on the book. But it's not this deterministic starting at point A, wanting to kind of navigate to this outcome point B. It's just, again, follow something that he likes doing that's profitable and working really hard at it and just trusting that good things will come from that. Those are my three takeaways. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Lewis and Kyle Show. And if you've listened to another episode, thank you for listening to that one too. If you would like to be in touch with myself or Kyle for any reason, I'd encourage you to say, hey, let us know any feedback you have. Let us know who you want to see on the show. Uh, We're pretty easy to find. There's instructions in the show notes wherever you're watching. If you want to support us, a couple ways to do that are to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, if you're on YouTube, just subscribe, like the episode, make a comment, anything like that. Share this podcast with a friend if you think they would like it. That is all for me. Until the next one, I will see you there. Have a good one. Bye-bye.